0: It's a beautiful song, and it's one that's very popular, and it's very popular in this congregation, and if you're, if you're new here, you're here for the first time, uh, then just know that that song with the four different parts that overlap, all of them saying and singing words of scripture, it's, it's one of those songs that we as a congregation, we own that song, we love that song, and uh, when it's time to request a song or when it's time for us to sing a song at, becomes sort of like an anthem for us. We sing that song called The Greatest Commands, and it's about love. And I thought this is a good opportunity for the next few weeks to ask ourselves, what are we singing about? Because when you just see the word love on the screen like it's there right now, that can mean a lot of things. The word love is a very well-worn basket, and we have filled it with so many ideas in our own experience, in our own lives, in our culture, and we're not unique in that. Most places, most cultures have some word that takes the place of love. Sometimes they have other words. We have other words, too, Uh, we're just not as aware of it, but What is it that we're singing as we sing through that song? Maybe we don't take a moment to notice because we can get a little caught up on when the bass comes in and whether or not that's my line or not. Some of us know our part, for some of us parts is parts, we're sort of the chicken nugget of the the choir, it's all just mashed together. Uh, but everybody has a part, and so we might worry a lot about the musicality. But if you stop and think, where do all of those phrases come from? Who wrote those lines? They come from Scripture. Embedded in that song, we have just gone through at least these Scriptures. 1 John chapter 4 is wrapped up in that, the alto part that, that, that starts out, he who does not love does not know God. That's from 1 John chapter 4, where John writes a letter explaining what God is. The tenor part, God is love, over and over again, also comes from 1 John chapter 4. The baseline, the one that mentions bears, that comes from 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, and, and there, Paul, it's, it's the one that we read at, at weddings, but, but Paul is actually offering that scripture to a dysfunctional church that needs to start practicing love as the most excellent way. Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 10 are all accounts of Jesus being asked, what is the greatest commandment or what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus brings out two scriptures, one from Deuteronomy 6 and the other from Leviticus 19, saying that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength and your mind. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Which is that final line that we add into the song. That's why it's called The Greatest Commands and yet it's really one command. But what are we singing and what are we saying and where should we begin? Because like we said, love, is that, that's, a, that's a vast ocean of meaning right there uh you 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 can you can love a day off you can love strawberries you can love your family you can love God are they all the same hardly and we know that and there's no point in belaboring that but what are we talking about well I want to take you to Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37 mainly because there's a well there's a dialogue here also if you were fortunate enough you got to see the, uh, the, the most excellent VBS players put this parable into action. Uh, it's the parable that we call the parable of the good Samaritan. Although nowhere in the parable is he called good. And no one in Jesus' day and age would have called a Samaritan good. Uh, maybe a Samaritan would, but there weren't any Samaritans available for the hearing of this parable when it was first spoken. Uh, Luke chapter ten. I like it uh, not only because it's in our living memory, but also because the question of how exactly do you define love and neighbor comes up. That that it wasn't. J- it's not just in our day and age that this question of of love and how vast its meaning is c- shows up. No, even in the time of Jesus, this question gets asked, and I want us to pay careful attention to what Jesus does with the answer to the question. So we're going to start reading in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. Uh, Actually, verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's the two. That's Deuteronomy 6, and that's Leviticus 19. Those are the two verses, the two verses that Jesus will even name. Here, the scholar is naming it. Jesus says, that's right. Do this, and you will live. Well, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus is going to reply with a story. But before we get to that, first of all, pay attention to what just happened here in Luke's gospel, okay? There's a dialogue between Jesus and the scholar. And, and, and Jesus is being tested by the scholar, Okay? This is, sort of a, uh, this is sort of a rabbinical version of a gunfight, all right? He's been called out. Show me. Show me your kung fu, Jesus. Show me that you know the answer to the question, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And how you answer, I, the scholar doesn't really want the answer. The scholar wants to see how Jesus will answer him. It's a test of his mettle. So he asked the question that ought to be on everyone's mind, how do I inherit eternal life? To which Jesus says, you're the scholar, what does scripture say? To which the scholar says, love God, love your neighbor. To which Jesus says, good answer, do that. Just do that, you'll live. You answered well. Very good, glad I could help. And then the scholar though wants to keep the match going so he has to ask well now who exactly is my neighbor Eugene Peterson in the message translates it as what exactly is the definition of neighbor Which I really like that because I think that's how we keep things going. Mike mentioned political debates that are going on right now. And, of course, one of the ways you keep those going and stay in the spotlight is to keep asking people to define terms. Well, how do you define that? Well, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, what does that mean to you? Well, I hear what you're saying, but don't you understand some people hear it this way? And on and on it goes, many words and nothing is said. And this scholar wants to do the same thing. Now... Please note that right there where Jesus and the scholar are talking, he asks the question about eternal life, gives a good answer, and Jesus says, that's it, do that. And it, it can all end right there. Now, I'm going to give you this option, because I know sometimes people have to leave early, and I know sometimes you know, the sermon can go a bit long, and I apologize for that sometimes. But here's the deal. If you've already got that down, love God, love your neighbor, and you don't have any more questions, well, you can leave, but now you don't want to leave because I've just called you out. And if you get up and leave now, that's awkward. But you, you have permission now to go get on your device, okay, and just tune out for the rest of it. Because if you've got this all figured out, then, you know, you don't need to know the rest of what I have to say. But if not, if you're like me and you're thinking, oh, wow, there's got to be more to this. What's going on? Because love is a big term. Then stick with me because I think Jesus has an answer here for us. But to do that, we need to read the parable. Because When the man says, who exactly is my neighbor? You need to define neighbor. Jesus says, okay, it's not going to take a simple answer for this guy. What we're going to have to do is tell a story. And he tells a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up. They left him half dead by the side of the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. A temple assistant, a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side of the road. Then a Samaritan, a Samaritan, one of those people is what Jesus is saying, especially for a Jewish audience. A Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, You take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, then I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. That's the story. And let's pay attention to what just happened there as Jesus tells his story. There's a traveler. It's noted that he's a Jewish man. The Jewish man and the Samaritan would not trust each other. Uh, no No Jewish man would expect help from a Samaritan. That's why that's significant. In fact, he would expect help from his own people. But he's robbed and he's beaten. Along comes a priest and passes by on the other side. Well, maybe we've just got a bad apple. Maybe he's just one of those elite snobs. We're listening to the story and we think, yeah, you know, you go to the well three times, sure. We're expecting this. Let's see where Jesus goes. Here comes a Levite, <clears throat> almost as good as a priest. You know, he's there. He's got important duties too. A lot of people like to say, well, you know, now maybe they were thinking that that might be a dead body and they're not sure. And if they touch the dead body, then they would be somehow uh, uh, then disqualified for temple leadership, which is, which is really, you know, that's a really bad thing if that happened to them that doesn't excuse them. I know that and you know that. That that doesn't excuse them. That, that there's all sorts of opportunities to show compassion. No, the first two who who've passed by have failed. We get that. They failed. They see somebody in need and they move on. So when a Samaritan comes along, that's someone that we expect, wait, 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 wait. wait. Samaritans, they don't have the same kind of values we do. They, they think they trust God. They think they believe God. But but their lives are all messed up. I mean, they, they buy into some things that are really wrong. Yeah, but it's a Samaritan. And the Samaritan feels compassion. Now, just imagine what the scholar is thinking at this point. It's like, wow, you really pulled up someone to make an example out of, didn't you? Of all people, the half-breed Samaritans, the people who live up there in the north, they have, they, you know, they claim that they're the descendants of Abraham, just like we are, but we know that they intermingled with the Assyrians. We know that they don't even believe in the temple, that they worship on a mountain. Come on. The Samaritans, they, they've, they've, they're so mixed up, they're, they're, no way. But a Samaritan comes along, feels compassion, acts on it, does something, invests himself in it, invests his own money. He, he not only feels the compassion, but he does something with the compassion too. And it's because of that story then that Jesus can come back to the scholar and he can ask the question, which of the three proved to be a neighbor? Now, this is important. Verse 36, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Go back a few verses and look, what is the scholar's actual question? Who is my neighbor? If you're asking who is my neighbor, then you're asking who am I responsible for as I show compassion and do good deeds? Who am I responsible for? Jesus has taken that question. I used to like to think that Jesus took the question and turned it over. He actually hasn't. He just disintegrated it and brushed it aside. He said, you're asking the wrong question." The question is, how do you prove that you are a neighbor? Our question today, the question that you're going to get from this sermon, the, the, the question that will be answered is not, who is your neighbor? Don't even ask, you know, but who is my neighbor? My neighbor is anyone that I meet and need. No, it's not. That's not the answer because that's not the question. That question is the worst question to ask. In fact, if you have to ask that question, then you don't understand what love is. You don't understand the commandment that Jesus just said, you got the two commandments right. Do that. If you're going to do that, then you're not going to be asking questions like, who then is my neighbor? What is the limit of my obligation to love? You don't get it. The question is, how shall I be? A neighbor? How am I going to practice love in such a way that I will be the neighbor? Jesus has just taken this from a passive drawing of boundaries to an active practice of compassion and love. The scholar can only give this answer. He doesn't even say the word Samaritan. The one who showed mercy. Scholar knows the the, the scriptures. He knows that twice in the prophets that God has said, here's what I want from my people. I want them to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. That's that's sort of an Old Testament way of saying these are the greatest commandments or, or this is what it means to be my people. Mercy is an important part of that love for God That love of God and love of another. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. The one that showed mercy is the one who proved to be a neighbor. So Jesus gives the same answer he gave before. Go and do the same. When the man said, here's the two commandments, he said, that's right, go and do that. Now he's got him right back at the same place. I think you've heard the story now, he says, now go and do the same. Show mercy, just like the Samaritan. Like a Samaritan, hey, that the, who it is isn't what's important. It's whether or not you can actually practice this love of God. To, to take a look at, at what's being said here and how this parable ties in to the two greatest commandments, those commandments that we sing about. I mean, here we are coming into worship. We're singing these commandments. We're listening to this again. And what we're doing every time is we're reinforcing in us that there is something that is of extreme importance. And that is the calling that we have. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy 6. It's repeated by Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Love God. They call that verse in Deuteronomy 6 the Shema. The Hebrews believed that it was the greatest of all commandments. That every other commandment hinged on it. That every other commandment was somehow rooted out of it. Because everything, everything else that you did was a demonstration of your love for God. And it's called the Shema because it starts off with the verb, Hey Israel, listen up. Hear, O Israel, is, is the way we like to say it. But it means listen up, listen to this. In other words, if you want to begin at the beginning and get it right, the first thing you have to do is understand that you and I are called into the love of God with every part of our being, with our whole being. Now, we can divide that up. We can talk about what it means to love God with our mind, what it means to love God with our soul strength. We can say, hey, wait, mine's not in the Old Testament, but later on it's in there in the New Testament. The point is we love God without and we hold nothing back. And when we love God, we invest ourselves, we pour ourselves into him. One thing about love, no matter what you mean about love, whatever range of meaning you've got attached to love, but especially when it comes to to, um, love, say, love for your country, love for other people, love for your family, love for your spouse, love for your parents, love for your children. When we talk of that kind of love, one thing we know about it is it always involves investment on our part devotion. It means that we pour ourselves into a commitment with other people. This is why we are called to love God. God is saying, love me so much that you pour your entire being into me. That's where we'll begin. We don't build up to it. We just start practicing that from day one. So the love of God here sets the standard for what love is. And the more that you and I practice it, and by the way, not calling you to perfection on the first day. We're, call, we're calling one another into a lifestyle of growth and learning. Then our love for God, as we love God, that sets the standard. As we practice it, that begins to define us. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, Everyone will know you're my disciples if. Now, now, now stop, think. Don't we want to know how to be Jesus' disciples? Don't we want to know how to be the true church? Don't we want to know how to be the kind of people that satisfy God and pleases Jesus? We know what Jesus has done for us. We've celebrated what Jesus did for us today. It's only natural that we would want to please him. Well, when Jesus says something like, everyone's going to know that you're my people, that you're my disciples... If. If what? If what, Jesus? will do it. Show us how to show everybody. Do we need to wear a badge? Do we need to have a certain name? Do we need to do things a certain way? What, what is it? What is it? Of all things, what Jesus puts there on the top of the list is if you love one another. In other words, all those things that you do are ultimately going to represent your love for one another. When Paul is correcting that dysfunctional church in Corinth and telling them you need to change some things in your worship. You know why? He said you're not pleasing God with what you're doing, but Paul wasn't just bringing in a certain set of rules and saying, here, here's the manual on how God says it's supposed to be done. He was saying you're going to please God when the things that you do in worship build up the church and make others grow. When you think more of others than you do yourself, you're worshiping God. You're pleasing God. And when our love of God starts to define us and people see that love of God in practice in us, then people begin to notice and they begin to recognize that. And it becomes a way that we think about ourselves as well. Love does not seek a definition for neighbor. We don't have to worry about who we're. I'm obligated to help them, and I'm not obligated to help them. You know, I got to help these people, but not these people. You go help those people. You go love these people, and you go. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not boundaries. Some of us are better equipped to deal with certain situations. <laughs> you'll, you'll read in Scripture where uh, you know Paul will say that he was called to the Gentiles, and you know Peter will say the same thing, and you know. It, it, there's there's callings there's people who are called who are naturally predisposed to help certain people depending on where they may be that's boundaries but that's not a limitation of love Uh, a limitation of love is is not saying you know well you've got to help the whole world and right now people are going to try to trick us into thinking that everything we has to do has to act on a global level if it doesn't act on a global level then it's not worth doing i mean what is it going to matter and that actually becomes an excuse then we back up well you know what, I can like stuff on Facebook all day long and that's about all I can do because I can't change the world and the world just keeps getting evil. The world begins where you end and our neighbor is the person who's close to us just showing that kindness right there. You know, we don't know how that extends. We don't know where that goes. Some of us think that we have the right to go out and be grouchy in this world, to go out and be unkind, I didn't get the service that I expected today at the restaurant. I'm going to speak harshly to this server because they need to know not to do it that way again. And you have done so well to help that person. Now, for all you know, that person could go home and beat their children. For all you know, that person could be so agitated that they drive recklessly and cause an accident. Oh, I can't be responsible for that. I'm not saying you're responsible for that. I'm saying you're responsible for your own attitude, which, whether you like it or not, your attitude, good or bad, has consequences. So choose. Choose to reflect the love that God puts in you. Choose to be the person that God is shaping you into. C.S. Lewis has a great analogy in his book, The Four Loves, and he talks about a garden. And and, and it's, a, it's a good thought exercise over what is the garden? Is the garden our work or is it God's work? Well, we would say it's God's work because we can't create flowers and we can't create fruit. We can't create vegetables like that. Yes, but without us, the garden would become wilderness. I mean, it doesn't take very long when your garden turns into a bed of weeds, right? But you've got your tools there, and you fuss over the garden, and you dig out the weeds, and you add the fertilizer, and you uh, make things just so. But in the end, what you notice is the garden and its fruit. That's where the glory is. Folks, you and I may just have a couple of old broken tools that we can use to work in the garden. But if we work in the garden, if we work in the garden that is our life with God, he'll bring the glory out of it. He'll bring the glory out of it. You just have to choose. And as long as we're focusing on our neighbor, then we might as well be gardeners who spend all of our time sharpening our tools and we never plant a single seed. Love acts in genuine compassion and mercy, and that's just what God does. That is, in fact, what God did in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the full expression of God's love, acting, Injustice, compassion, and mercy for the salvation of this world. So, if that's how God would show love, why shouldn't we? Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would teach us more and more about your love. Father, we come here today to encourage one another to love you more with all of our being. And help us to remember then that the more we love you, the more you pour your love into us, the more you have poured your love into us already. And Father, we pray for the the gardening that jerks out the weeds of sin, that that cleanses us of the diseases that that stunt our growth. And Father, we ask that you would make out of our lives something glorified and pleasing to you. Something that gives you the glory. And Father, teach us how to practice your love. We're not worried about defining it, Lord. We're not worried about limiting it. We just want to grow in it more and more. We want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. We want to share in his suffering. We want to endure through death. Father, give us this resurrection power in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how can we encourage you today? We're going to sing this song together. Uh, There's going to be an opportunity for you to be encouraged. There will be shepherds right here. There will be shepherds in room 100. Let's stand together and let's sing this song.